This is Lemore Daphne for NEJM Catalyst. I'm speaking today with Michael Chernow. Professor Chernow, a fellow economist, is based at the Harvard Medical School, where he's professor of healthcare policy and the director of the Healthcare Markets and Regulation Lab in the Department of Healthcare Policy. His research examines several areas related to controlling healthcare spending growth while maintaining or improving quality of care. And he studied a variety of insurer-driven payment reforms, including value-based insurance design and the alternative quality contract in Massachusetts. Today, we'll be focusing on Professor Chernew's work and insights regarding alternative payment models. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to chat with you. My first question for you is, we've known that fee-for-service is broken uh, for quite some time. Um, why, why uh, in particular, is the government doing something about that now? We've been at it for a long time. In the 1980s, um, they started with the DRG system for hospital payments. By the 1990s, they were on to physician payments with the uh, RBRVS system, which has given us the uh, relative value units. Then in the late 90s, but it really got started in the early 2000s, there was a sustainable growth rate system for physician payments, which was many things but not sustainable. So there's been this evolution of activities regarding payment reform, primarily, frankly, to control health care spending growth. And well, we hadn't been that successful for all, with these other uh, strategies for a variety of reasons, and so that's why I think there are these new ideas. I think in addition to this desire to have a payment model designed to help control healthcare spending growth, we wanted a payment model that allows providers that practice care efficiently to benefit economically from that behavior. And by doing that, we can create an incentive for efficient practice of medicine. At some level, you've already led into the, the next set of questions that, that I was hoping we could talk about, which is, you've said, listen, that the government, CMS, uh, and payers have been serious for quite some time. They've implemented other approaches that basically have failed in terms of controlling health care costs. Um, what, what is new under the sun, uh, and how is it working? Well, there's a number of things that they're trying to do. Um, let me start with what I would call, broadly speaking, the changes in the way in which they're trying to bundle payments. And so they're trying to take the payment model and give a payment that spans providers and spans time. So that would include a population-based payment model like uh, global budgets, for example, and also episode-based payment models. The population-based payment models set a fixed target of spending for an entire person over typically a year, and an episode payment model looks at a particular type of care, say a hip replacement, a knee uh, surgery, something like that, and sets a budget for that that spans providers and spans time. You see that, uh, for example, in the bundled payment for care improvement initiative. Um, I personally have some concerns about how broadly applicable episode-based payment models can be because so much of our spending is among patients with multiple chronic conditions, so it's very hard to divide up that spending to specific episodes and figure out exactly which providers should be accountable. But there's a lot of innovation going on in, in that space, and we'll see where they actually go. And those types of episode models can actually be well-suited to target specific providers. The population models are much broader, but they require larger organizations to manage them, and they require those organizations have mechanisms to allocate this broad population-based payment down to the different providers that care for their patients. I wanted to follow up on that and ask you this yeah. question, because at some level, 
as you described it, population-based health has really been what insurers have been doing, which is taking a set amount of funds and uh, and managing the care to some degree of enrollees and dispersing those funds. So yep. perhaps you can explain to me why uh, policymakers think that providers will do a different job and hopefully a better job of managing uh, population health with the funds. Yeah. I think fundamentally the success of the healthcare system requires that the people who deliver care and the organizations that they're affiliated with practice care efficiently. And the insurers, in t accepting this population payment, which we call a premium, when they allocate it out to the providers, the incentives that the insurers faced didn't get translated very well to the organizations that were actually delivering care. And the essential idea behind these population-based models is to move that incentive to manage spending for a population away from the insurers that had very weak levers and very weak control over the actual delivery of care down to the organizations that actually are on the ground interacting with patients. And that essentially has been the theory. And of course, as these population-based payment models move forward, many of them currently, and there's increasing aspirations to have more of them, require the provider systems to bear risk. Um, so can, can you tell me, uh, you've done extensive research uh, on, on alternative payment models. Can you give me a summary of, of your understanding of, of ACOs and, and how they're working? The official ACOs in the Medicare program, and our sense is it's very early on in the game. They're saving a few percent. That's not nearly as much as advocates would have hoped for. But on the other hand, if you can save a few percent, that's better than not saving a few percent. And they're expanding, again, somewhat more slowly than advocates would have liked, but there are more organizations that are accepting these types of models. Um, here in Massachusetts, there was an early ACO-like program. It was called the Alternative Quality Contract, implemented by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. And our estimates were that by four years, that program saved roughly 10% relative to what otherwise would have been spent it's really important to understand that spending is not going down, it's just going up more slowly. A lot of those savings in the alternative quality contract was because in the private sector there's very wide variation in prices and when the providers had the incentive to direct patients to the lower priced settings and uh, organizations, they did that and about half of the savings were due to those types of activities. You, so let me, let me stop you right there just to, sure. to, re, to restate that. So what I'm hearing you say is that the way in which a commercial ACO reduces health care spending and achieves, and presumably while achieving or, or, or uh, exceeding quality targets, is by redirecting patients to lower, lower cost sites of care or lower cost providers. That, at least the lower priced provider angle of it, is not going to work for Medicare ACOs. Yeah, so that's about half of the savings in commercial programs we've studied. And it still can work in Medicare to some extent because there's such different prices for similar services delivered in an office-based or facility-based setting. So there's some amount of price variation. But yes, you're correct. There's a lot less room for that in Medicare ACOs. So we would expect long run 
the saving opportunities are less. But remember, we're not trying to lower spending. We're trying to change the rate of growth in spending. And historically, the rate of growth in spending has been driven largely by volume increases. So in a population-based payment model for Medicare, if you can control the benchmark, which is really the central policy parameter, in my view, you can control the rate of growth in spending and essentially hold the providers, as opposed to the insurers, accountable for a rate of spending growth that's more in line with the rate of income growth. Right. Well, so a a sustainable rate of spending growth certainly sounds like a worthy target, and actually reducing spending is not something that that many uh, think is is, uh, at all likely to happen. So if I'm a provider organization, what kinds of advice would you offer to me as I think about how to succeed in this new setup? So what is essentially happening with all these new models is they're changing the business models that provider organizations face. And the organizations to be successful have to be more sophisticated and think more broadly about populations because in general, they're accountable for care outside of their walls in a whole variety of ways over time with other providers. So most of these models, the population ones, are uh, centered around primary care physicians. The episode models less so. They're developed in some ways uh, in ways that can work more for specialists, but all of the organizations have to figure out how to find where the value lies and succeed by reducing the amount of care, ideally reducing the amount of wasteful care in the system, as opposed to increasing the amount of care. You succeed essentially by translating reduced waste into profit, which can only be done in these new models. And can you speak to the questions surrounding how providers are organized to achieve this? And here specifically, I'm referring to whether physicians need to have be jointly owned with hospitals. Do they need to jointly own all of the different sites along the continuum of care in order to achieve this? What, what does your research tell you about whether that's likely to be the route? In our first analysis, we found that you could succeed under either organizational structure. Essentially, if you're a hospital-based organization, very integrated between hospitals, physicians, and perhaps other providers, post-acute and others, you really do have the ability to coordinate care across the spectrum. The challenge, of course, is as you try and reduce wasteful care, many of the providers of that care are part of the organization, and it really becomes a challenge. So if your strategy was to reduce hospital care, that might be harder to do if the organization is dominated by the hospital. On the other hand, organizations that don't include those other facilities inherently are going to need to refer their patients outside of their control, and they're going to need to manage that better through contracting, referral patterns, and things of that nature. And we're in a period in which we're exploring which of those organizational forms work. Frankly, I don't think there's going to be one answer. My general sense is organizations of both types can be successful. It's just they have to execute on their strategy well and understand that in order to succeed, there will be some organization that's going to have to receive less money than it otherwise would have received, but still probably more money than it had in the past. Right, and operate under an entirely different uh, incentive structure than it, than it currently does. Which brings me to the next question. We've actually heard and read a lot about ACOs since even before the Affordable Care Act was passed in March 2010, and it still seems like they are they are just taking root, and that fee for service 
is a better descriptor of our healthcare payment system today. Um, what do you think is slowing down the transition, and are there any steps that that you think either either the government or state legislators or providers or payers could take uh, to accelerate the pace? Yeah. So I think, in fact, these types of models are growing both in public and the private sector. They might not be growing as fast as one would expect, but the trajectory still seems to be moving upward. I think the fundamental issue in terms of accelerating the pace is the extent to which you maintain pressure on the fee-for-service system, which is currently scheduled to happen. If you look at the new fee schedule um, that was put in place following the repeal of the sustainable growth rate through a legislation that was called MACRA, and the system relates to this uh, MIPS, or it's the, the new quality payment model. In that system, the updates for physician payments are 0.5% through 2019, and then they drop down to zero. There's quality bonuses that go on top of that, ignoring whether we think the quality measures are good or bad. That system is designed to have winners or losers. So the net amount of money going into the physician system, and to some extent the hospital systems with the productivity adjustments and the Affordable Care Act, all of the fees in the fee-for-service system are scheduled to rise very slowly, much more slowly than we would anticipate inflation being. In order for providers to succeed in that model, they need to be able to convert efficiencies into income, and these new payment models allow them to do that. If we relax these payment models, in other words, we put more money into the system through one way or another, we will discourage the transition to the alternative payment models. The other thing that's really important is the rules around the alternative payment models, particularly the federal ones, have been changing periodically. We had the Pioneer program, now we have the Next Generation program. At some point, we'll probably have the next next generation model. But in any case, there's a lot of subtle rules that sometimes make it hard for organizations to succeed, the way the benchmarks are set, the size of the shared savings, a number of other governance rules, and a whole bunch of rules. And we are still in a period of experimentation, both in public and private sector, to figure out exactly what works. And I could give examples of private sector versions of this where these are evolving and moving forward. So it's a combination of push and pull. 